Hello, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today we begin an exciting study in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Once again, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Isaiah is the first book in the section of the Old Testament that we call the prophets. And in addition to that, it's the fourth major division of the Old Testament. The first division was the law, if you recall, as Genesis through Deuteronomy. Next are the historical books, Joshua through Esther, and then the books of poetry, Job through the Song of Solomon. And now we come to the prophets, and the prophets are divided into major and minor prophets. Now, it doesn't mean that the ones that are called minor prophets, that they aren't just as important. It just has to do with the size of their work. The book of Isaiah is the fullest revelation of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament, so much so that it is often called the gospel according to Isaiah. We are going to see in this book some of the most exacting prophecies about our Savior found anywhere in Scripture. In verse 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The vision centers upon Judah and the impending destruction upon Jerusalem, the city of God. But for the most part, Isaiah is known for his messianic prophecies. It seems that Isaiah saw more clearly than any other, or it was revealed to him maybe more clearly than any other, any other prophet, the coming of the Messiah. We will learn so much about the coming of the Messiah and of the kingdom age through this prophet Isaiah. He seemed to have a very full revelation of the coming of Jesus. And God's plan of redemption and his work of redemption are central in this prophecy. That is even suggested in the name of the prophet himself, Isaiah, which means God saves. John, the forerunner of Christ, began his ministry with a quote from Isaiah. That is in Matthew 3, verse 3. Jesus preached his very first sermon in Nazareth from Isaiah. That's Luke 14, 17 through 21. And the New Testament quotes from Isaiah more than from any other prophet. In fact, the New Testament quotes Isaiah by name more than all the other writing prophets combined. Also, some of the most beautiful language in English literature is found in this great prophecy of Isaiah. Truly, he was a superb master of language. Verse 1 tells us that it is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. There are at least seven men by the name of Isaiah in the Bible but only one is Isaiah, the son of Amos. This is not Amos the prophet, but Amos, who, according to rabbinic tradition, was the brother of Amaziah, king of Israel, king of Judah, the father of Uzziah, which would mean that Uzziah the king was then a first cousin of Isaiah, and Isaiah is a part of the royal family of Israel. We know more about Isaiah probably than we do any of the other prophets. Isaiah, for instance, we know that he was married to a prophetess and was the father of at least two children. We know that from Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. 
We know that he lived in Jerusalem, Isaiah 7 and chapter 22 and 37. Isaiah was a great man of God. One commentator said this, and I quote, Isaiah has the courage of a Daniel, the sensitivity of a Jeremiah, the pathos of a Hosea, and the raging anger of an Amos. And moreover, he leaves all of them far behind in the unique art of holy mockery. His courage is of such a nature that he never, not even for a moment, shows himself to be weak or timid. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah carried on his ministry through the reign of four kings. This period of Israel's history is told in 2 Kings 15 through 21 and 2 Chronicles 26 through chapter 33. Now Isaiah was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Micah. By the time of Isaiah, the prophets Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, and Amos had already completed their ministry. By this time, Israel had been in the promised land for almost 700 years. The first 400 years in Canaan, Israel was ruled by judges, spiritual, military, and political leaders that God raised up on whatever the occasion demanded. And then for about 120 years, three kings reigned over all of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. But in 917 BC, Israel had a civil war and remained divided into two nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, up until the time of Isaiah. Up until the time of Isaiah, the northern nation of Israel had some 18 kings, all of them bad and rebellious against the Lord. The southern nation of Judah had some 11 kings before Isaiah's ministry, some good and some bad. Isaiah carried on his ministry through the reign of four kings, and the first one mentioned in verse 1 is Uzziah. Uzziah was a very popular king. He reigned for about 51 years. It was during Uzziah's reign that Israel was very strong. He was a good king. He built up the land. He made it strong. He made it wealthy. But towards the end of his life, when his heart was lifted up with pride, he went into the temple of God himself to offer incense. And that was something that only the priest was to do. And as they tried to stop him, he became angry with them. And at this point, Uzziah was struck upon his forehead with leprosy. And thus he had to live out the remainder of his life in isolation, co-reigning then with his son, Jotham. Being disabled in part by the leprosy, Jotham co-reigned with Uzziah and was a co-regent with Uzziah, and his reign only lasted one year beyond that of Uzziah. So the second king listed here, Jotham, was on the throne for one year after the death of Uzziah. Then came Ahaz, Jotham's son, and he was an extremely wicked king. Ahaz closed up the temple of God. During the reign of Ahaz, they began to worship the pagan gods. The worship of, and he himself, sacrificed his own children unto Molech in the valley of Hinnom. He brought in all kinds of abominable practices to the children of Israel as their hearts were turned completely away from God and after these pagan gods. So Ahaz was an extremely wicked king. 
And during the time that he was reigning, the Assyrians began to take many of the cities of Israel. And during his reign, they began to become praise to the northern kingdom of Israel. At one time, 200,000 of the people of Judah were carried away as hostages to the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a time of moral decay and military weakness during this reign of Ahaz. Verse 1 lists one more king, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king, and he reigned for 29 years. It seems that Isaiah had a very great influence on Hezekiah. It was during the reign of Hezekiah, and it's probably partially due to the fact of the close relationship with Isaiah, that Hezekiah had a good reign. He was a good king. He destroyed all of the idols, and he destroyed all the high places in the land. He initiated spiritual reforms. He pointed the people back to the worship of Jehovah, and he had a good reign. It was during his reign that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, surrounded the city, threatened to destroy them if they did not surrender to him. And here we see both Hezekiah and Isaiah pray to the Lord to deliver them from this king. And that night, the angel of the Lord defeated 185,000 Assyrians, which caused the rest of them, of course, to return home without a fight. At the death of Hezekiah, his son Manasseh came to the throne, and Manasseh was extremely wicked. He was probably the worst of all of the kings of Judah. And as a part of his wickedness and his rebellion against God, according to tradition, he ordered Isaiah put to death. Justin Martyr records that Isaiah was sawn asunder by orders of Manasseh. It is believed that Manasseh himself sawed him in half with a wooden saw after the prophet had hidden himself in a hollow tree from this angry king. Many think that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37 where it says they were sawn in two, is a reference to the martyrdom of Isaiah. So verse 1 gives us an introduction to Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And then he begins immediately with God's complaint against the nation of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. So God is calling heaven and earth as witnesses against Judah. The call is for all of creation to come into this cosmic courtroom and hear how Judah rebelled against their God, the one who birthed them as a nation. This summons by God to heaven and earth to listen to what he has to say indicates that this is a universal truth, that it applies at all times and in all places. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God brought into being the nation Israel. God called them out of their bondage in Egypt. He delivered them with a strong hand under the leadership of Moses. He preserved them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and under the leadership of Joshua. He brought them into the land that he had promised to Abraham's descendants that they might have that land as an inheritance. God gave birth to the nation. God watched over the nation, and God nourished the nation. And in its inception, in the beginning, they recognized the place of God in their national life. It was a nation that was to be a theocracy. That is, a nation that was ruled by God. God ruled over the nation through Moses, 
and then through Joshua. Later, God reigned over the nation through the judges. But it was during the period of the judges when Samuel judged that the people came and demanded a king like all of the other nations. And it became a monarchy. But they were to be God's people. And they were to be the witness to the world of how when a person or a nation or a people will honor God, how God will bless and prosper those nations. So it was a nation that was to become strong. And it did become strong. It became very powerful. Under the reign of David and Solomon, it reached its zenith of glory and power. But unfortunately, under Solomon's reign, when the nation was strong and great, Solomon began to turn his heart away from the Lord, and he began to worship other gods and build temples to other gods in Jerusalem. And that was the beginning of the long decline of the nation. So God is calling the heavens, the angels and the earth, the nations of the earth to bear witness to what he declares, to what he has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. It is the heartbreak of a father or of parents who have poured their lives into their children, given them every benefit and opportunity that they could, only to have the children turn against them and rebel against them. It sounds a lot like America, doesn't it? If ever a nation has risen by the grace and the blessing of Almighty God, it is America. But you would never know that today. More than 100 years ago, Abraham Lincoln said this, and I quote, We have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined that all things were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. End quote. In verse 3, God declares that his children have sunken lower than animals, than brute beasts. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider The leaders and people of Judah were not just like dumb animals, such as the ox and the donkey. They were dumber than dumb animals. The ox at least knows its owner, but Judah doesn't know who owns them. The donkey knows who takes care of him, but Judah doesn't know who takes care of them. This is a true story out of Haifa, Israel. A policeman, while reading this passage from Isaiah conceived a way to discover the owners of a caravan of donkeys loaded with contraband, the owners having fled. So he put all of these donkeys in a pen, didn't let them have food for several days, and then released them, and then just followed them. And they went straight to the den of their owners, who were arrested for their crime. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. The end of verse 3 says, My people do not consider. The word consider means more than to think. It means to think rightly. It speaks of arriving at true conclusions, to exercise accurate judgment. The complaint of God is that the nation was defective in their discernment. The people of Judah were not seeing things as they really were. Their conclusions about things were twisted and distorted. In verse 4, he gives a sevenfold indictment of the nation. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, 
They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. In other words, they have backslidden. And can't you hear the emotion in God's words here? Because of their actions, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon them. Verse 5, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. So God is lamenting the fact that his people are beyond chastening. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. They had already begun to experience the devastation that is only a foreshadowing of that which is to come. Many of their cities had already been destroyed. The walled cities had been captured. And rather than saying, we've got to turn back to God, we need to repent, they went deeper and deeper into their pagan practices. They weren't alarmed or alerted by the deteriorating conditions, the sickness of the nation, and it was a sick nation. And we cannot but help see the parallels between Israel and the United States today. The United States was a nation that was birthed by God. Our pilgrim forefathers came here to find that freedom of worshiping God according to the dictates of their own heart. They wanted to worship Jesus Christ. They wanted to worship God without being told by the state how and where they were to worship. They wanted the freedom to read the Bible and to have the Bible. And so the founding fathers spent time in prayer as they sought to frame the Constitution. They sought God and they looked to God that he might be the heart and the soul of the nation. But sadly, just like Judah, like Israel... We, like brute beasts, fail to consider the place of God in our national history. We have turned from him and become a sinful nation, loaded down with iniquity, sick. You look at the symptoms of the sickness of the nation, and they are everywhere. There can be no question that we have forgotten God, our spiritual heritage, and the ultimate reason for our greatness as a nation. When a nation can condone the murdering of millions of babies each year, it is the worship of Molech, sacrificing your children to the God of pleasure. Because people are not willing to obey the scriptural instructions and commandments concerning monogamous relationships in marriage, the commandments against fornication and adultery, because we have begun to worship Ashtoreth in our sexual passions, because we have turned to sexual lasciviousness, We have a lot of unwanted pregnancies that we are terminating within the womb. The termination of the pregnancy is the offering of the children to Molech. We are as guilty as Judah, and we are as deserving of the judgment of God as was Judah, and as Judah received. When a nation can condone the murdering of millions of babies each year, when a nation can endorse homosexuality as an alternate lifestyle, when a nation can require that the Ten Commandments be taken down from our classrooms and courtrooms, when a nation can reverse a judge's decision because he quoted from the Bible, when a nation can forbid prayer from public gathering, when a nation can legalize gambling as a means of funding our public school system, and when Congress has to even consider a bill that protects the rights of Christians, then it is apparent that we have forgotten God as a nation. Verse 7, he says, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. 
Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. This was true during the time of Isaiah. These are the things that happened and took place in Judah. So the daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem, is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. During the planting season, during the late spring, the summer months, and up through the harvest, the families would, for the most part, move out of the cities into their plots of land where they had made little shift houses or lean-tos or huts. And they were made out of sticks and palm thatches over the top, and they were just a temporary type of a hut. And once the harvest was in, then they would bring it into town, and then they would leave during the winter months, and then they would live during the winter months within the town. And so the Lord said... So the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, is left as a booth in the vineyard, as a hut in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. When Sodom and Gomorrah were judged in Genesis 19, they were totally consumed with fire and brimstone. There were no survivors. And yet Israel was not to be like this. God in his grace would leave a remnant, a few survivors. Paul quotes this verse in Romans 9.29 to refer to the small number of Jews who would come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So as bad as Judah's state was because of their sin, it could have been much worse. It was only by the mercy of God that they survived it all. Sodom and Gomorrah were both totally destroyed and not even a very small remnant was left to carry on. Even in the midst of judgment, God showed his mercy to Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. So God now addresses the rulers in Jerusalem as if they were the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? says the Lord. Now, we need to remember that God was the one who designed the system of sacrifice for sin. The idea was that an animal would take your place on the altar and die to pay for your sins. But the system was designed with one prerequisite, that you be a person who is repentant over your sins. When David committed his sin of adultery, followed by murder, he became aware that God wasn't just looking for another sacrifice from him. We read it earlier in our scripture reading. In Psalm 51, 16, he said, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. In spite of all of this sin, all of this iniquity, and in spite of all of this sickness, national sickness, the people are still religious. They were still going through the formalities of religion. Marx said a very interesting thing. He said, religion was the opiate of the people. And he was right. People are drugged by religion. It is an opiate for many people. 
Religion sort of blinds them to the truth. It fogs their brain and they are deceived because they're still going through the religious activities. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Now the incense was the representative of prayers. It was to be a sweet-smelling savor arising to God, but God says it's an abomination. Your prayers have become an abomination. The new moons, that is monthly feasts at the time of the new moon, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, that is times when God's people come together to worship, he says, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of burying them. Now notice all the work they were doing. They offered sacrifice unto God. They celebrated the feast days. They prayed before God. They were doing all the things that God required of them, outwardly speaking. And God is saying that he has had plenty of this and he does not want them to do this empty work any longer. You see, their heart was wrong. Their heart was far from God. And this is a very dangerous place to be because it makes people feel very comfortable. They have a false assurance, and God says, I don't even know you. When God changes your heart, cleanses you from the inside, those inward changes will affect your outward actions. But outward actions will do nothing to change your heart. Only God can do that. God had enough of their empty religious practices. He looks upon our worship services quite differently, I think, than we do. From outward appearances, everything looks pretty good in here. Looks like it's in order here. But God sees the heart. He knows the hypocrisy. And if your heart isn't in it, it doesn't matter what you sing, say, or do. God doesn't hear you. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Now, this was the posture of prayer in that ancient culture. Instead of praying with heads bowed and hands folded, they would pray with their face turned upward toward heaven and their hands spread out to heaven. So when they prayed, the Lord says, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Their prayers became an insult to God. Lifting up bloody hands to God is an insult to his holiness and to his righteousness. I'm sure that in the midst of all of this religious ceremony, there were many fine prayers that were offered. Many eloquent, stirring, and emotional prayers were said. But they were empty, hollow, useless prayers because God looked at Judah and said, Your hands are full of blood. So what does God want then? If religious ritual and beautiful, well-planned services don't do it, what will satisfy him? Well, he tells them in the next verse. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Now in reading this, it sort of sounds like a works theology of salvation, but it is not. As God cleanses you inwardly, these then will be the things that naturally flow from your life. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. 
Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.